I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on May 20th of 2012 under the headline, Pioneering Oregon Lady Lawyer Deserved a Better Legacy. It's part two of a three-part series on Mary Leonard. Here we go. It was around 1878 that newly single Mary Leonard moved up to Portland and set herself up as the proprietress of a boarding house in the North End Waterfront District, the seediest, roughest neighborhood in Portland. Mary was in her early 30s, striking in appearance and more than a little notorious. She'd moved there from the Dalles, where she had just been acquitted of charges of sneaking into her husband's bedroom one night and shooting him in the head while he slept. She'd spent a full year in jail there while the government prepared its case. The jury then had found her not guilty, but few people thought she was actually innocent. Newspaper accounts talked of the brilliant job her defense attorney had done in defending her, the implication being it was because of his brilliance and not her innocence that she was walking free. Her husband had been quite well off. She was his only heir, and he'd been in the process of divorcing her when he was murdered. So she had a motive, and in the Dalles, that was good enough for most folks. So she'd come to Portland to start a new life. In the Skid Road neighborhood, of all places. Mary settled into her new role and apparently made her peace with singlehood. She never remarried. But something must have been missing in her life, because five years after that, she became a law student. First in Portland then in Seattle, where she moved to study under renowned attorney J.C. Haynes, leaving her boarding house behind. In 1885, having passed the bar exam, Mary became the first woman ever licensed to practice law in Washington. Then she turned back to her home state, applying to be licensed to practice there as well. But although Judge Matthew Deedy ordered her admitted to practice in federal courts, at the state level it was not going to be so easy. It had long been the state court's practice to recognize the credentials of attorneys from other jurisdictions without requiring them to prove their merit and, quote, good moral character, but the state Supreme Court now suddenly and conveniently decided to question whether that, quote, exuberance of liberality was appropriate, and it denied her application. Mary responded by lobbying in the state legislature and getting a law passed that would require women to be admitted to the bar on the same basis as men. It passed overwhelmingly in both houses. The Supreme Court responded to that by hastily cooking up a brand new one-year residency requirement and using that to deny Mary's application a second time. This time, Mary argued her case in person before the Supreme Court itself. She started by pointing out that in the months since it had adopted the new rule, the court had made exceptions for 12 other male attorneys moving into the state. Quote, If in its discretion the court saw fit to treat these men with such consideration, then may I ask who is entitled to more consideration than I am? She said. Since I have been deprived of practicing my profession for the last twelve months, having made my arrangements and my calculations under the old rule, and knowing nothing else until a month ago when the rules were established, 
I am now pleading to this court not to impose upon me a hardship which the court deems too hard for a strong, free, and unfettered man to bear. I am not a free man, but since I belong to the protected sex, or oppressed sex, whichever you please, I am asking for the pitiful privilege of being allowed to obtain a livelihood as best I can, which is a natural and God-given right, and my right in law. One of the things that historians have frequently said of Mary is that she was incompetent as an attorney. This was probably true late in her career, when she was clearly suffering from some unknown and progressively worsening medical condition, and it was certainly true that she never was much of a detail person. But as this quote nicely shows, in the late 1880s, she had some serious skills, and she was hell on wheels in a closing argument. Of course the court admitted her. It really had no choice. As a practicing attorney, Mary was not particularly successful but she was most definitely noticeable. Her practice was mostly in the criminal courts, where she represented down-and-out prostitutes, gamblers, vagrants, and laborers in trouble with the police. These clients had little or no money, so to make ends meet, she went back into the boarding house business again. She was also famous for going out drinking with the young attorneys, who seemed to have regarded her as something of a mascot. She drank and caroused as wildly as any of them, despite being in her late forties, twice their age. But as far as I've been able to learn, there was no hint or rumor of anything sexual. If Mary Leonard had been run over by a trolley at this point in her life, in the early 1890s, she would have been remembered as a pioneering woman of considerable promise and talent, cut tragically short in the prime of her career. She probably would have had a monument in her honor at Riverview Cemetery. But as it turns out, fate had something considerably less glorious in store for her. About ten years after she was admitted to the bar... Mary's behavior started to change. She started feuding with people, neighbors, clients, the owner of the building in which her boarding house operated. Other things were happening, too. Mary's pleadings in court were getting increasingly erratic. She was getting arrested for things that ranged from stupid to bizarre, suborning perjury, embezzling a dollar forty in witness fees from a client's mother, threatening bodily violence, menacing her landlord with a pistol. Her handwriting started to change. By the end of her career, it was completely different, and it wandered off the lines in strange and illegible ways. Her famous oral arguments started to lose their edge, fading into a chaotic style of wandering, garrulous griping. Her success rate in court, of course, dropped accordingly. What was going on? Alcohol-induced dementia? Tertiary stage syphilis? Early-onset Alzheimer's? It's just not possible to say, but something was. Mary's law career ended just a few weeks before her death with complete humiliation in an attempt to claim title to some real estate in lieu of payment from a client who'd been judged insane. Maybe Mary, too, should have been judged insane. Her habits and practices at the end of her career were totally different from those she'd shown at the beginning of it, and by the end she'd apparently lost every friend she'd had. The end came just a few days later, when Mary was admitted to Multnomah County Hospital on October 11, 1912. On her admission papers, the lines for the names of friends and family members are blank. Her coterie of young lawyers was gone. Apparently they'd all stepped away from the awkward spectacle that she'd become. Her sister lived in town, but they never spoke, and her nephew didn't even learn he had an aunt until years later. And two weeks later, she died in her hospital bed, alone friendless, penniless. Today, nobody even knows where she's buried. 
Key sources in this story have included works by Carrie Abrams and Malcolm Clark Jr. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) 